Beyond Borders. You are listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Stay tuned next for Cover to Cover, Open Book. Welcome to Open Book on Cover to Cover. I'm Richard Walensky. My guests today are John Fisher and Ed Decker. John Fisher is the artistic director of Theater Rhino in San Francisco, and Ed Decker is the founding artistic director of New Conservatory Theater, also in San Francisco. Both are, I guess, considered queer theater, gay theater companies, but there's something else going on here because that's a very limiting term, I think. Why don't we define exactly what your theater companies are? What is the relationship between being gay and these theaters? Ed, why don't you start? The um, New Conservatory Theater Center does a lot of different things in the the Pride season and the queer theater, gay theater, um, whatever term you choose to use, is one of the programs that we operate there. It's always a difficult question to answer because it seems to mean something different to to everybody. But for us at New Conservatory Theater Center, it means um, in the Pride season producing work that has primary gay themes in it. And in our youth programs, it primarily means helping kids understand messages of tolerance and teaching them about anti-homophobia and working at using theater to help young people understand that there are a lot of different people in the world. But the audience isn't necessarily a gay audience, is it? In the youth programs? In both of them. Uh, Not necessarily, no. In the youth programs especially, uh, many young people are just not self-identified yet as, you know, one sexuality or or sexual preference or another. In the Pride Season program, I'm sure it's the same at John's Theater, there's a lot of different people that join us for our performances. I would say we have a lot of gay members in our audience, of course, because the, the themes speak to them and illuminate the experiences that are first and foremost most perhaps in their lives, but the experience is um, available and interesting to everyone. And John at Theatre Rhino, is that pretty much the same? Yeah, I've steered us more and more towards the word queer to embrace all kinds of alternative sexualities. Our theatre started as a principally gay male theatre and then in the early 80s became gay male and lesbian theatre. So we do have an audience of uh, lesbians. We do lesbian work. I thought we were getting a little too confined by those terms because a lot of people, especially young people, don't necessarily identify themselves as gay male or lesbian female anymore. They think of themselves as queer, open to all kinds of sexualities. In an effort to broaden our horizons and also recognize, as Ed says, that a lot of our audience isn't just gay male or gay female, I've shifted us towards the use of the word queer. Everybody thinks I got off of TV like I didn't know the word existed until Queer as Folk, you know, and of course TV has embraced it, but it's actually kind of an old term, queer. It's a very old term, and then it's a recently old term. It's been re-embraced as a good thing. So we do do plays with a queer slant, principally though gay male and lesbian female works, and our audience is diverse. 
Are there other theater companies with similar uh, message statements in the Bay Area? That's an interesting question as well because it, it feels like all of our mission statements are pretty much the same. We're reaching out to a lot of different audiences and I'm seeing all of the theaters include queer themed yeah. work in their seasons yeah. as well as non-queer themed work in yeah. their th seasons. And it just feels like all of us are reaching towards the same goal which is you know, good storytelling that impacts people's perceptions of the world and our culture and our politics and all of those things are intersecting in really profound ways now that we all need to be a part of. Well, if that's the case, mm -hmm. then is there really that much need anymore, particularly in the Bay Area, for specifically queer theater? Oh, absolutely. Stuff? No. I mean, because, I mean, I think the plays that Ed and I do are a lot more radical in that regard than what you're going to see at some larger theater companies, which tend to con choose rather conservative works of queer theater. And I think it's our obligation to keep pushing the envelope because you can see it on TV if you want it wholesome. And I'm not saying that everything we do is unwholesome. You know, I, I'm just saying that just as our theaters, I think, got started recognizing this minority and this minority's need to see their lives on stage, we need to keep recognizing how that minority has changed, how it's grown how it's become more and more radical, or stayed radical, I should say. And that's the importance of our theaters. Theater Rhino is older than New Conservatory, right? Yes. Theater Rhino is the oldest in the country? In the world. Unless there's something like in Baghdad, if there's like a queer theater I haven't heard of. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I assume. But yeah, it's the oldest in the world. You said it started more as a gay male yeah, theater. Yeah, definitely. When did it begin to shift in the 80s? It's actually had more lesbian artistic direction than it has gay male. I'm in the minority as far as artistic directors go at the theater. There have been more years that it's been run by, by women than it has by men. And you yourself, you are a playwright and a performer. Medea the Musical is, I guess, what you're best known for, though Joy of Gay Sex did play in New York, uh -huh. I think, last year. Yeah. What brought you to be an artistic director rather than continuing the career as a director and performer and writer? You know, it's like the one thing I hadn't done was produce, you know. It's like I, we're just sort of theater people. I, I think that's how we think of ourselves as theater people. And if I had to build the sets, I'd do that as well. I started working at Theater Rhino, writing and directing plays when Doug was the artistic director. And when he stepped down, they asked me to take over. And it seemed a logical step. Producing's a weird thing. It's, it's, how does anybody become a producer? It's something you find yourself doing one day because you want to make sure it keeps happening. And Ed Decker, over at New Conservatory, you're the founding artistic director. You've been around since the start then. Right, this is our 25th anniversary. How did you get started? It's interesting to know. I don't even know if John knows this, but when I first started directing in San Francisco, I worked for Alan Estes at Theater Rhinoceros. I did know that. Yes. I uh, did a couple projects there with a few artistic directors that came through Theater Rhinoceros. So I have a history with Theater Rhinoceros as a place that I'm very, very fond of. I came to this work as I worked at ACT in the late 70s, early 80s, under the, the general director at that time was, and founder was William Ball. And I was a teacher in their conservatory program, and then I ran their young conservatory program. Long story short, in 8081, broke away from ACT and founded the new conservatory, which at that time was exclusively designed to be a progressive arts training program for young people and a theater and education program that was to tour Northern California with progressive theater works teaching kids or helping kids understand about social issues related to adolescence. And what happened? How did it become 
what it is today. Well, you know, it's, fate is an interesting thing. The building that I am in at, at 25 Van Ness in San Francisco... Which is virtually on the corner of Van Ness and Market. Van Ness and Market was owned privately and went into receivership. And at that time, real estate was still affordable in San Francisco. And the city of San Francisco bought that building for a very low price, I think. And they wanted to take the theaters and destroy them after they had just refurbished and put them in there in 1985. It was just an empty basement prior to that. And we led a campaign with then-supervisor Roberta Ochtenberg to preserve those theaters. And we realized as we were leading the campaign that we would be homeless if we didn't preserve these theaters. And so fate intervened. We saved the theaters. They became our home. Um, we have a master long-term lease there. And in 1991, we found ourselves with three theaters trying to figure out exactly how we were going to use those pro those theaters. So for three years, we, we tested every kind of program you could possibly manage from you know, stand-up comedy to um, the strangest performance art you've ever seen until we could figure out sort of where our place in the, the community was. And then we added the gay theater programs and our musical theater programs and our co-production programs at that time and moved it from a rental house, which we had to do to survive, to producing and presenting all the things that are in there that go through there now. You guys commercial or non-commercial? How does that work? I think we're both non-profit. Yeah, we're non-profit. Okay. Well, when in the biggest sense of that word. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, but, but that does bring up the question of commercial potential. I mean, when I see ACT, for instance, putting on tired old war horses like Our Town, I assume that they might get a larger audience than they would for a new play by a new playwright. They are taking those kinds of things into commercial consideration. Maybe you, John, are doing it when you put on a Tennessee Williams play, like Not Without Nightingales, or are you? Yeah, I mean, uh, name recognition is important. Uh, I, I don't think uh, either of our theaters, though, is interested in doing revivals all the time. I, I think the the important thing, the bottom line, is new work, and it's risky, and it's tough, and scary, and people don't always get it. Obviously, I think you have to keep an eye on the bottom line and produce things that people are going to come see. Even when you do new work, you have to, you know, it's you, you, it, it can't be too odd or too off-base. I feel like our bo the bottom line is entertainment. We do have to entertain. You feel the same way, pretty much? I, I do. I, I think it's important for us to do the, the new work like both of our theaters do, and we also have a responsibility to our history, so yeah. we make sure to include that for our current generation and the generations to come so they understand the, the journey that we've been you know, we've been on together in this, what I consider to be a civil rights movement. The commercial notion is important to, to every theater because I think we all want to contribute to the, the greater canon of American theater. And if there can be some commercial return on that that's going to ultimately benefit our theaters, then I think that's, that's a good thing because, as John says, we have to look towards the bottom line. And, you know, good business is good business. And if we can be earning royalties on new work that tend to go off and play all over the country, then hooray for us. We need to, we need to consider that uh, aspect of running the business of making art as well. Let me ask you something about the San Francisco Chronicle. This is a one newspaper town as much as the Oakland Tribune uh, would like to think it's not, or God help us, the examiner. John, before we went on the air, you said that you don't seem to see any bump in business one way or another from a Chronicle review. 
How do you folks feel? Are you scared at all of the Chronicle? Do you feel like you need to kowtow to them? How open are you about those kinds of ideas, Ed? You know, when I first started working in San Francisco some 30 years ago now, there was so much more arts coverage because they had more people on staff taking on the assignments. There was, you know, a cabaret reviewer. There were a couple of theater reviewers. There were dance reviewers. There were more music reviewers. And as time has gone on, we're, you know, we're down to, you know, Robert, bless his heart, having to get to all theaters, large and and small. So I I understand the dilemma in the newspaper business, and I think that's further exacerbated by the fact that people are reading newspapers less and getting their information elsewhere. And I think that makes it challenging for the media as well because they have to position themselves in a manner that allows them to review things that are going to give them the biggest bang for their buck and reach, you know, more of their eyes. I'm sure you've seen how the film coverage... Unbelievable. Yeah, Music, day. film, video, it's it's incredible. That, and Rob says this himself. He says right. you know, he's the only reviewer. And when he has to do a profile, that means he gets to review one less play. It's incredible when you think about it. I mean, now I'm kind of used to it, but there used to be several mm-hmm. theater reviewers. There was indeed. At the Chronicle, and then there was like a competitive paper, the Examiner, and now there's pretty much the Chronicle and one guy. And it's like you open up the New York Times, and it's like there's this mess of reviewers working for the New York Times. Sometimes I don't even recognize the names. I think I've every time I think I've got the four names, there's like another one pops up, and you know it's it's very frustrating. And I think he's as frustrated as anybody. How do you publicize? I mean, there's also the uh, the two gay papers, BAR and Bay Times. Did they make a difference? And what about the Guardian or the East Bay Express? God love them all. I mean, the, the the gay papers are very dedicated to us. I've never had a few uh, sense that they're just out to get free tickets to big Broadway shows. I mean, they really come out and cover and I think give sensitive, intelligent coverage. It's it's really hard to gauge what the papers actually do. It's hard to know. I I, I think print advertising is is becoming less and less effective. Uh, I know that. I think word of mouth is still what sells tickets. Mm-hmm. Theater is very communal in that way. It's uh, people really do talk to each other and convince each other to go see things. I think we're trying to figure that puzzle out, too. You know, I've noticed over the last couple of years that all printed things, brochures, postcards, newspapers, they don't seem to be translating into butts and seats mm-hmm. as they used to. Mm-hmm. We're trying to understand, you know, where can we drive people's attention? You know, is it is it to our website? Is it to other large websites that feature gay content and have a, a list of entertainment choices? What is it that will get somebody to actually buy a ticket? I think John is right. Word of mouth is always the best. I mean, if you can get the groundswell going and you can get your audiences excited about what you're doing and one person telling the next, I think that sells more tickets than anything else. Yeah, I, I guess for me what, what bothers me is if people don't find out about shows or they think it's one thing or another, I would hate, for instance, you know, for a black theater company to not get white people going to see a a really good play and you know in particular say bringing up two plays at your companies like beautiful child over theater rhino or last year's man of no importance terence mcnally's musical Mm -hmm. were both sensational performances uh incredible productions the equal of anything i've seen in the bay area and i look at that and i wonder you know are people able to see that rather than say going to piece of junk like white christmas or rain 
Well, you know, people self-select the the things that they that they are that they. But if they don't know to. about it, I mean, yeah, I mean that's, that's always the dilemma. I'm sure John experiences this too. You know, I know New Conservatory certainly doesn't have enough money to be blasting from the rooftops on radio, yeah. television, and in the newspaper. We have to be very creative and very resourceful about how we reach our reach our audiences and. Somebody's uh, love of White Christmas would maybe translate into a dislike of a man of no importance. I mean, it's really uh, about discriminating tastes and you know and interests. Yeah, but one is getting the play and one isn't. Well, right. one one hopes right. that if people go and see enough White Christmases, they'll want to dig deeper into theater and have different experiences. It's like anybody going to see Hollywood movies. Eventually, you get burnt out and you want to see some French things. It's like there's a limit to the pleasure I think in too many big musicals. And one thing I learned last year is don't have four-week runs. It's not enough time to to get word out. I mean, I had to learn this myself. Do you think you guys have enough rehearsal time to put on the plays that you want to do? If you had an unlimited amount of money, would you have longer rehearsal time? I would. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, the more the more opportunity you have to explore and examine, you know, the better the the end result is. I mean, shortchanging the process has its consequences. You get good at rehearsing in the amount of time you've got. You learn how to do that. But, you know, it's like I, I grew up on Grotowski. You're supposed to rehearse for six months and then invite, like, two friends to see it. And then, you know, maybe never do it again. And it's, it's like sometimes it's just, like, horrifying. Let's move on to the subject of how you pick plays. An original play, do you just suddenly get a stack every day and you kind of have to look through it and sift your readers can anybody send anything to either Theater Rhino or New Conservatory? How does that process work? Ed Decker from New Conservatory? Recently, we instituted a process that requires folks to send in a synopsis and a character breakdown and some basic information about the script that they wish to submit because I know about John, but there's just not enough time to read all the manuscripts that we were getting through our door. I mean, the good news is that people are writing, and that's exciting. So that's the first sort of step for us, is kind of weeding things out by looking for, you know, particular content. It's hard to curate a season, and one of the ways that I do it is that I have to pick an overarching theme. And that's really mostly for me to focus my attention on the kind of work that I want to, to do in, a, uh, in curating an entire season. So, for instance, this season is the anniversary season. What did you look for in this season? This season, in the Pride season, it's called Ties That Bind. So I looked for plays that looked for connections that we have to family, politics, culture, popular media. You know, again, it's an overarching theme, so you can kind of go anywhere you want to go with I it. Mean, Last season, it was We Are Family, so we looked at the issue of family in the gay community very closely. But McNally's Crucifixion, which is playing through the weekend, through this coming weekend, that's it. Great play. I mean, that'll fit almost anything. Sure. But its primary themes were about connections that people have to one another, people have to time, place. Did he create the play Understanding the Ties That Bind? I think Ties That Bind actually came as the McNally Project was emerging. And I started to see other plays that were being submitted to my attention have a similar exploration of things that connect us or bind us, both sort of in the microcosm of our small communities and then rippling out towards global connections that we have as a gay culture, if you will. The McNally piece, in part, inspired the choice for the overarching theme of the, the season. 
A few years ago, a friend of mine, I won't say who it was, uh, did a one-man show at New Conservatory, and he was told he had to have male nudity in the show. What's that about? Quite honestly, when we started our Pride season 11 years ago, there was a great uh, movement in gay theater that there was just nudity everywhere. And a lot of independent producers were using that as a vehicle to get attention. And I, too, used it as a vehicle to get attention for our Pride season. As a business decision, it moved our audiences into place really quickly. Um, as an aesthetic decision, it's it's sort of a, an issue that lingers and, and lingers and lingers. Because now it's important, I think, for, for all of us to know that you know sexuality is a component of who we are as queer individuals, but not the only or the most important element. So whatever that was, it's gone now. I mean, if somebody did a play, you wouldn't necessarily have to see nudity. Oh, absolutely not. And I'm sure you've seen other shows on our stages that would verify that. And I think both theaters have, have moved away from that or beyond that. Not to say that there's anything wrong with it, but I think that that, was a, that characterized a lot of queer theater, as you say, at the time. And a lot of independent production, like Party and all right. kinds of things were passing through where people were just taking their clothes off. And it was this great celebration of nudity. I don't know, people loved it, they needed it, they wanted it, they expected it from gay theater, and now, I, I think much less so. I wanted to say that I had a theory about all of that, and that is that when it was occurring, we had been so repressed and things were so dark because of the HIV pandemic, say, yeah, you know, and I think people wanted to see it. sexuality celebrated again, uh -huh. for it not to be taboo and wrong and secretive, and I think that was one of the components that brought that to the forefront in gay theater, if you will, because people were longing to celebrate that again, because we've had to deal with a lot. John Fisher, how do you create your season? I mean, for instance, you have a new play that's open now called Missives. Did he just submit it? How does that process work? Is it pretty much the same with uh, Ed? Obviously, I think we both have our antenna up all the time, and I, you know, read the New York Times, and this, this thing about reviews is funny, because I read the New York Times this horrible review of Beautiful Child, and I was like, I gotta read this thing. So, I mean, you know, reviews do get the word out there, even if, even if they're wrong. With missives, it was somewhat different. Uh, playwright actually hammered on me for months to do something, and he kept hitting me with the, this idea, which I, I was like, it sounds like a lot of work for me. I asked him, do you have anything else? And he said, well, I've got this play, Missives. He sort of like just sort of tossed it off. He asked me if I could read it. And I, I just loved the play. But it, it was funny. I just sort of knew him in another context and knew that he was a playwright. But everything sort of comes from somewhere different. We generate a lot of local playwrights. We encourage their careers. Uh, I look for things that have been done in New York that were interesting. I dig through old stuff, like Not About Nightingales, you mentioned earlier, which I couldn't believe had never been done here. And in that way, a, a season begins to emerge of things that either, uh, that, that create a balance. They aren't all new or all old or all this or all that. Are you trying to create a balance between gay male and lesbian, or is that entire idea kind of an old hat idea? I tend to look for the best plays that I can find, and then the, 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 the characters sort of you know, fall into place from there. And sometimes the best plays you can find are the ones you can commission yourself yeah. and work with, with playwrights that you enjoy working with and have, an inter have a fascinating story that they would like to tell. And you go on a you know, two- or three-year journey together, and you, you make the play. Right. You've done it with Terence McNally. Who else have you done it with? We've done it with Prince Gomovius, has done a couple projects for us. He adapt we did the um, stage version of Mysterious Skin, 
which subsequently became a, a film. And um, a local writer, Jim Provenzano, who writes the sports column in the BAR, adapted his book, Pins, which was about homophobia in high school sports. And Prince is writing another one for us called The Fabulous Adventures of Captain Queer. And John, do you commission? Yeah, I mean, it's um, with Garrett again, it was uh, somebody who I liked, who had written a play, who was just eager to do it, and somebody I knew I'd want to work with. And with Tracy, who was the director of Missives, and we did a play, Worse Than Chocolate, by Jason Post, who is a transgender. And it was it was so much fun to find a transgender play that was just a fun play. It was uh, just good theater, and I was excited about the experience of putting it on. I'm going to throw out a couple of other questions that have nothing to do with queer theater at all, which is, what is the state of theater today, not merely locally, but understanding that Broadway, and even off-Broadway, has become corporate? I don't think it's as dire as people say it is. I mean, my whole life, theater seems to have been struggling, and uh, I think everybody's perception is that there was this glorious time in the United States when there was more theater, or better theater, or more people went to theater, and if there was, you know, I, I haven't lived through it, somehow it, 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 I, people still need it. It's still necessary. And I think it's our job to keep doing it and not to throw in the towel. I would agree with that. I, th- I think the, f- the funding situation is feels more dire yeah, to me because we, we have all these broken government infrastructures. Yeah. And so now more than ever, the, the arts have to compete with social service programs that provide food and yeah, medicine right. and shelter. And those things are very, very necessary for our, our communities. And when uh, the government programs and budgets were sound and, and solvent, those social programs had more of a sta- safety net. And now they're they're going to the same places that John and I need to go to for both individual uh, donor support and foundation and and corporate you know support and then add to the list of natural disasters in the the world recently then you've it's compounded you know from that it strikes me that um, that the right wing agenda which says that uh, basically government should not be funding the arts and the arts should pay for itself in the long run. I mean, I understand, you know, my only objection to government, of course, is when you get censorship, they feel that they have a right to tell you what to do. But at the other extreme, of course, is the fact that you wind up with bad Hollywood product because everybody turns their sights to the commercial rather than looking for the artistic because short-run money is better than long-run money. I think theaters really rise to that occasion. I think the the work that I'm seeing happening across the country and, and locally is that theater tends to always lean more on the subversive side of things. Even when even when they're doing those traditional, you know, chestnut productions, you'll find that they're contemporary threads that are being extracted and pulled you know, pulled into view and I think that's that's our job is to, you know, sort of be the opposite of what the, the Hollywood machine would be doing and, and take a closer look at things in non-traditional ways. Yeah, I mean, I think the perception is that we're doing the same thing as Hollywood, and I I, I feel like we're we're radically different. Uh, You know, they're making gloves, and we're making socks or pants or something completely different, and the whole experience of theater, I think, is rewarding in such a completely different way, but we can be more political. We don't have to play in 50 cities and 3,000 screens. We really can do these things that they cannot. And do you see theater having a strong political point? Absolutely. Yeah. Otherwise, why bother? Yeah, it's got to. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it must remain political and it must remain, I think, radical. 
Ed Decker, uh, Crucifixion plays through this weekend. Do you have any other plays going on your stage? We'll be doing a new comedy for the holidays called After Dark by Los Angeles writer Steve Kluger. Wesla Whitfield, cabaret singer, comes back for the Christmas holidays. And our family music, Carol King and Maurice Sendak musical Really Rosie, will be on in December. And New Conservatory, people can find it by going to the website, which is... NCTCSF, or just Google New Conservatory, and it'll take you right there. And a phone number? 415-861-8972. And John Fisher, Theater Rhino, uh, Missives goes on through Thanksgiving. What else you've got? Anything else now? Or? Uh, we have Bent opening on uh, December 7th, and then Marga Gomez New Year's show at the Victoria on New Year's Eve. And the website is... The rhino.org 415-861-5079 You've been listening to Discussion with John Fisher from Theatre Rhino and Ed Decker, New Conservatory Theatre. I'm Richard Walensky. My next program, which is 3 p.m. on Thanksgiving, is an interview with comedian and social activist Margaret Cho. This program was produced by Richard Walensky. You can contact Richard at bookwaves at hotmail.com or by calling KPFA at 510-848-6767, extension 630. are warmly invited to KPFA's Estate Planning and Charitable Giving Seminar. Saturday, November 19th, 10 a.m. to 12 noon at the North Berkeley Senior Center, 1901 Hearst Avenue at Martin Luther King in Berkeley. The seminar will cover basic estate planning everyone must know to protect their families, creating a charitable bequest in a living trust, as well as life insurance aspects of charitable giving. All attendees will receive a complimentary phone consultation.